Hello and welcome to The Lancet Podcast. I'm Richard Lane and it's Thursday, March the 9th. And this week we're talking about polypills because we publish a two-part series in the upcoming issue of The Lancet. It's a very interesting topic. Polypills have been talked about for at least 15 years within the context of tackling atherosclerosis and combating non-communicable diseases at a global level. But they have not been without their difficulties in terms of implementation and that's very much what this series is going to be discussing. I'm delighted to be joined on the line by one of the key authors of the series, corresponding author of Paper 2, and that is Ruth Webster on the line from Sydney. Come in, Ruth. Give me your full title and affiliation, please. Hi, Richard. It's a pleasure to be uh, joining you on the podcast. I'm Dr. Ruth Webster. I'm the Head of Research Programs within the Office of the Chief Scientist at the George Institute for Global Health. I was also the International Coordinator for the Space Collaboration Group of Polypill Trials, which includes three of the um, large polypill trials that have been conducted. Polypills? We've been talking about polypills for a long time. The high-level discussions were going on at the World Health Organization as far back as 2001. We obviously have, looking at the broader global context, we have the non-communicable disease NCD framework, which has targets about preventing atherosclerosis because of the of the toll that takes on cardiovascular disease worldwide. The NCD framework targets to reduce NCDs by 25% by 2025. The polypill story is very much tied up with this, but yet implementation of polypills has been poor. Why is this? There's been a range of reasons for that, Richard. And it ranges from the starting point. Has been, there's been a, a somewhat limited global manufacturing um, investment by the large pharmaceutical companies in development of polypills, even though they've been discussed for, as you said, many years. There's been some uncertainty related to intellectual property around these pills, um, uncertainty around uh, returns on investment. Uh, as we know, big pharma companies tend to be uh, excited about the big blockbuster releases and not so excited about the low, uh, I guess, the low budget or the low return pills that contain generic component med- medications, potential for low market returns, even though they're high volume, they might be low returns in the, the poorer resource settings. And so there's been a very um, slow development process. There's also been manufacturing difficulties in the companies that have taken it on as part of public-private partnerships have faced technical challenges in actually just getting multiple components into one pill without getting interactions or or degradation of components. So that's actually been technically challenging just to develop the actual polypills. It sounds easy, but it's actually harder than we think. There's a lot of reluctance for people to commit to high volume purchases from from companies due to financial risk. There's skepticism by clinicians about the concept. There's quite a range of reasons, but I think predominantly it's been due to this slow getting on board of manufacturing companies to actually producing the polypills that we need. Hmm. And when we're talking about the polypill, are we talking about one and the same thing? Are we talking about a combination pill which contains a blood pressure lowering agent, a statin? Are we talking about the inclusion of aspirin or not? I believe that's uh, even that latter thing is a bit controversial in some areas. Can you just clarify what we're talking about here? There is a lot of different opinions on what should go into a polypill, and there are multiple different polypills that are now being developed, and different groups have different opinions, which I think is great. I think variety is great for the concept and actual for the eventual implementation to um, clinical practice. So as a general rule, polypills that we're talking about contain a statin, doesn't matter which one. Um, there's simvastatin, there's atorvastatin, um, and I'm sure we'll see rosuvastatin when it comes off patent. So it contains a statin, at least one blood pressure lowering drug. We have polypills with one, two, and three blood pressure lowering drugs in there. So there is a lot of variety around um, blood pressure lowering drugs. And that 
um, encompasses almost every different um, category of blood pressure lowering medications as well. The inclusion of aspirin is, is somewhat controversial. As we know, there is a, a bit of an uncertain risk benefit ratio for aspirin in certain populations. So some polypills do have aspirin in them and some don't. It's great to have an option for all the different patient populations. But as a general rule, we're talking about statin and a blood pressure lowering medication plus or minus aspirin. And in terms of, this is, I mean, this is again a key argument here, if you read, read the series papers, the kind of debate over who should be targeted by the polypills. Some people say, well, it's got to be targeted at very specific high-risk groups, or other people are saying, no, 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 it should, be more, it should be more broad than that. We need a public health approach. Actually, we should just say once you're over the age of, say, 60 or 65, everyone in the population should be targeted. Where are we with this important debate? I think you've hit the nail on the head. The different opinions on, as to how to define the population of, that we should target with polypills has actually hindered the, um, the expansion of the polypill concept or the rollout of the polypill concept. And I think it's probably easiest to think of it as a spectrum of patients. At one end of the spectrum, you have patients who have clinically diagnosed atherosclerotic disease or secondary prevention populations. These are people who are generally already indicated for taking all components of a polypill. They may or may not be taking them, but they are indicated. Their guidelines recommended. So they're sort of at one end of the spectrum. And then in the middle of the spectrum, you've got maybe, say, patients who are at high calculated risk of developing atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. When I say calculated risk, I mean using a Framingham equation, using the AHA, ACC, uh, risk calculator, the Q risk, the New Zealand guidelines uh, risk score. You know, there's a range of different um, calculators you can use. So they're sort of the high risk calculated primary prevention, but they haven't had an event yet or they haven't had their, their cardiovascular disease diagnosed yet. And they're sort of in the middle. They're pr probably indicated for at least the statins and the blood pressure lowering components of the polypill, but they may or may not be indicated for the aspirin. And so that's a population in which the risk-benefit ratio needs to be considered, particularly um, in relation to the aspirin. And then at the other end of the spectrum is probably what you described as the mass treatment approach, where you might treat people based on only one risk factor. So that might be age, as you mentioned, and the, one of the most popular articles about polypill use back in 2003 talked about that, that type of approach. Some other people proposed choosing another risk factor, such as just a blood pressure level or cholesterol level or whatever. If you think about it on a spectrum, I think that's probably the helpful way to think about it. There's different targeted populations, depending on where you are on the spectrum. And I think then it's helpful to look at the evidence for each group of um, people along that spectrum. That's helpful. Thank you. In terms of the evidence base, plenty of evidence around. If you look at the evidence base for the efficacy, safety and efficacy of polypills over the past 10, 15 years, how would you best summarize the evidence base? It is quite heterogeneous. There's been quite probably initially there was quite a few polypill trials, probably around six or seven polypill trials who looked at polypills compared to placebo or maybe just uh, monotherapy. And they were mainly looking at whether or not polypills achieve the same kind of risk factor reductions as um, the component medication. So they compared them to the component medication data. And they all showed impressive effects of, you know, systolic blood pressures drops of about seven millimetres of mercury, LDL cholesterol by about one millimole per litre. And then we moved on to, I guess, the longer term trials, which were more the pragmatic, the open label. They all went for a lot longer, some of them up to 18, 20 months of treatment. And they were attempting to look at how polypills uh, compared to a usual care or maybe the individual component medications. And so those trials are probably what 
give us the most evidence about how a polypool would work in real life. And those, I guess, the five key trials that are mentioned, particularly in the first paper of the series, they were predominantly conducted in patients with either established disease, secondary prevention population, or high-risk primary population. So they, they were combined um, trial participants. And in those um patients particularly, the evidence is really clear that there's a really big effect, um, a uh, positive effect on adherence um, from use of polypills. So meta-analysis has showed that you get about a 44% improvement in adherence in those populations, which is, that's big, that's significant. And then following on from that, it's not just an improvement in adherence, but you also see a consequent drop in systolic blood pressure and also LDL cholesterol, most likely as a result of that improved adherence. So we're seeing flow-on improvements in risk factors, not just improvements in adherence. We also have looked at adverse events because you know there's concerns over the safety of polypills. We've shown slightly more adverse events of about 10%, particularly in those five trials I was talking about with a usual care comparison, but no significant difference in serious adverse events, which is reassuring. So in summary, would you say that, 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 that collectively the evidence base is strongly advocating the benefits of polypill use? Yeah, I would say certainly we have a lot of evidence now in that secondary prevention, high-risk primary prevention population, that the, the pills work, they improve adherence, they improve risk factor control, and they're also safe to use. And I think that evidence is really strong. And if we don't apply that evidence now, then we're really missing the boat on something that could really potentially help us reach those 25 by 25 goals that you were mentioning before. Indeed. Well, that brings us neatly to paper two in the series, which is the paper that you're the corresponding author of. And this deals very much with the practical reality, doesn't it, of how we can be better at scaling up the use of access to polypills in country health systems so we can specifically deal with, uh, yes, scaling up and, uh, and approaching dealing with these NCD targets. So we're getting the global benefit of something that has proven efficacy and safety. Let's start off with the barriers. As I said, in the introduction to the podcast, WHO were convening high-level meetings 16 years ago. What have been the main barriers to uh, widespread implementation? As I mentioned before, one of the biggest barriers has just been the lack of um, big pharma getting on board with developing polypills. Uh, most of the polypills that have been developed and also the trials that have been conducted have been as um, a result of public-private partnerships, usually with generic manufacturers or smaller manufacturers with small, if not non-existent, research and development budgets. And so the whole development work over the last 10 to 15 years has basically been done on a shoestring or a comparative shoestring. The trials themselves, including the space collaboration trials that um, I was the international coordinator for, were all publicly funded trials. They weren't funded by pharma companies. They were funded by organisations such as the, the European Commission or the National Health and Medical Research Council of Australia the National Heart Foundation of New Zealand. And as you know, those sorts of funding schemes, they take time to, to apply for funding, get funding, conduct the trials. That's been one of the biggest barriers is just getting to the point of um, generating the evidence has taken a lot longer than everyone expected. There's also been a lot of pushback, I think, um, to the concept, which has actually affected even just um, getting funding for trials and, and pushing the concept forward. A lot of people think about the, the paper by um, Nick Wald and Malcolm Law in 2003, which proposed giving a polypill to everyone over the age of 55. And so if you mention the word polypill, the antibodies are raised. No, no, we don't want, we don't like that concept. We don't agree with that. We don't agree with giving it to everyone and um, not monitoring risk factors, etc. They're kind of the big things that a lot of um, academics have been battling for many years. 
Just a little bit more on paper two. There's some analysis in paper two. Is it original data or is it taking some of the data from paper one? But you go into a bit more detail. So in paper one, it, it, it's more of a, I guess, a straight synthesis that comes from a Cochrane review that was led by Mark Huffman. It contains a lot more detail on the systolic blood pressure drops, the adherence improvements, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what we've tried to do in paper two is just to tease out a few more of the subtleties, perhaps, of the papers. So some of the data we present in paper two um, might be included in the last paragraph of the results, but it actually gives you extra insight into the results of the study to try and get at those personal opinions from physicians and patients about polypill concepts. What that qualitative evidence gives us is the some insight into what do we need to address to actually get polypills implemented on the ground. There's a lot of support out there from the qualitative studies, a lot of positivity about use of polypills in certain populations and in certain circumstances, but a lot of concerns are also raised. So for example, one of the biggest themes that comes out from all of those qualitative studies is the lack of flexibility in prescribing of the polypill, and physicians don't like that. They like to be able to titrate or individualize. So firstly, we'd say, well, that approach is generally not working for the majority of the world's population with cardiovascular disease. We know there are large population gaps in the coverage of these medications. But also, when we look at the trial data, we actually look and say, okay, yes, there was limitations in prescribing within the, the trials. But for example, physicians were allowed to prescribe additional medications on top of the polypill as a pragmatic approach to um, allowing them to titrate. Now, on first glance, oh, that's against the principle of the polypill. Aren't you supposed to be simplifying the medication regime, reducing cost, et cetera, et cetera? But in the Canyini Gap study that was conducted in Australia, we found that even though 44% of patients had extra drugs titrated on top of the polypill, we still got a mean drop in pill burden of two pills, which is you know, not insignificant. And we also overall showed an improvement in adherence of 44% in the trial. The other thing that one of the, that the space collaboration meta-analysis actually showed us was that if you looked at just a patient population that was taking all their medications at baseline, they'll prescribe their medications, we showed a 5% improvement in adherence in that group of patients. So they, they saw an improvement. That was great. You did still help them take their drugs more reliably, but we showed a 400% improvement in getting patients who weren't prescribed everything they should have been at baseline onto all categories of medication. So what we actually showed with that analysis that perhaps the, the best population to target with use of a polypill is actually patients who you might be struggling to get them onto all component medications. They might be willing to take only the blood pressure or only the statin or only the aspirin or two of the three. But with use of a polypill, you can get a, a, a huge effect in getting patients to take all of their recommended medication. So we've tried to draw a few of those little increased tidbits out of the uh, original paper. So there is a few extra um, uh, niceties in the, in the second paper on top of the first paper. Two final questions, and um, fairly brief, as we need to wrap up in a moment. The role of the agencies, World Health Organization, the big cardiology uh, associations, other organizations, what do they need to be doing? Should they be playing a stronger role now? Actually, it's about leadership now, isn't it? Absolutely. As we know, just publishing papers and putting, putting them out there actually doesn't change practice. What we need is the key opinion leaders, the, the World Health Organizations, the local heart federations, the local opinion leaders in the countries to get on board as well. And I think particularly in the case of the low resource settings, WHO plays such a key role in getting, providing advice, providing strategies and providing guidance for how countries can implement the polypill into their, their health systems. And 
one of the most important things is to getting the polypill onto the essential medicines list. So many countries depend on that essential medicines list to guide their own development of their essential medicines list. So that's one avenue to get it into the countries. But then WHO has also um, developed these different packages, such as the Hearts package, which actually tells countries how to implement it. Yes, we know you don't have many resources. We know there's a, a stretched health system, but here's some pragmatic advice about how to implement, how to identify the patients who will benefit, how do you get into practice, what are the benefits um, that you can see. So that's really essential, but also we need updated local guidelines. We need the heart foundations in various countries on board. We need cardiologists, we need local physicians. We need these key opinion leaders to advocate and to say, we have something that's effective. This is how we implement it. Let's get on board. Even getting the patients involved, get the patient's voice to be heard. There's an effective medication that's cheaper um, that I can take. I want it. Can you please provide it to me? And then I think that's really important to get all these, to get this out there and actually in use. Thank you, Ruth. You couldn't be clearer than that. So final, final question. What's the best case scenario over the next eight years to 2025? I think the best case scenario is some really, even just, high-level goals. Let's get the polypill onto the essential medicines list. Let's get it into countries. Let's get the marketing approvals. Let's let's facilitate these processes to get it into countries. We know that we're talking millions of lives, millions of lives. If you can even prevent a couple of percent of heart attacks and strokes in those millions of lives, we're talking big numbers. And I think that's what we've got to aim for. The HIV story is a great example of what can be done with a lot of advocacy and a lot of um, and a lot of hard work also on the ground. It can be done. We know it can be done. And we're, we're talking we're talking large numbers of lives here, large numbers of events, and also not just of um, lives but also dallies. Disability adjusted life years. Disability adjusted life years. Absolutely, it's the loss of income. It's the loss of working potential. It's the loss of um, um, economic potential for a country as well and I, and I think we, we have the potential to really impact that if we really get on board and try and get this implemented as part of that 25 by 25 vision. Dr Ruth Webster on the line from the George Institute in Sydney. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. My absolute pleasure.